You're listening to Girls Gone Canon, covering his dark materials. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon Reads, His Dark Materials, Episode 24, The Amber Spyglass, Chapters 26 through 28. I am one of your hosts, Eliana. And I am another one of your hosts, Chloe, and we are here in the last third of the book. Oh gosh, things are getting sad, things are getting hectic, things are getting very tense. We've covered Northern Lights, The Golden Compass, The Subtle Knife. We've covered all of the outer novellas available at time of publishing right now. And we've started on those books of dust, right? We've finished La Belle Sauvage, but yet we have not yet conquered the amber spyglass but we're gonna mm-hmm. we're gonna mm-hmm. we're thinking of with the end upon the horizon we're thinking about what to do going forward but for now you just all have to worry about northern light slash the golden compass and the subtle knife in regards to what we will cover this episode in regards to spoilers anything that is in those outer novellas or the books of dust please do not worry about us really bringing it up this episode or anything that happens towards the end of the book though again how you held yourself Ish. back yeah, I might, as every time, bend the rules. Sorry, I just, I, we're so close. And it's hard. It's so hard. But again, those outer novellas and things in the books of dust or slash, you know, that are really, really towards the end of the books will be in the dust discussion. Yes, the dust discussion is where we get all sorts of dusty. We chit chat about anything we've been thinking about with the end of the main trilogy or the outer novellas and the books of dust. And I really do hope that we continue on our dusty path to the secret commonwealth, but that is for a future us to talk about when we finish this book, right? Yep. You guys will hear about it then. Future me is different from today me. Girl, ain't that it. <laughs> ain't that it. For tonight, today me, tonight me, will be covering chapters 26, Abyss, 27, Platform, and 28, Midnight. Make sure you're read up before you keep press and play. Give it a pause if you need to. It's gonna get intense. And besides the books, as you all know, there is a television show, His Dark Materials, and Season 3. While it has not yet been announced, we know that they are now in post-production. But let's say you're waiting. You want to prepare for Season 3. Yeah, you want to prepare for Season 3, then you need to be a part of our private Discord server. Our private Discord server over here at Girls Gone Canon, you can get access at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon if you sign up and pledge to the Thunder tier. The Thunder tier, the $10 tier and above, gives access to like over 30 to 50 channels of just crazy discussion and weekly His Dark Materials rewatch discussion events. Fans are gathering and rewatching our friend Pete is a great friend, great patron, and he is hosting this rewatch discussion every week on the TV show, the adaptation over at BBC HBO. Uh, <laughs> the next episode is actually this weekend. It is. Ooh, it's going to be season the one, Lost episode Boy? five. Yep, The Lost Boy. Yeah, season one. Oh my God, this mm. is a sad week. <laughs> I have to get sad. I'm going to be listening in the rafters. This week, if you're listening as the episode's published, because I have some uh, house guests coming, but I will be listening because this is a sad ass episode. We have some first timers. 
joining us, right, that haven't watched the show, hadn't read the book, but have now finished the second book. Our friend Britt has finished the first and second book in record time within five weeks. She's pretty mad at us. Uh, and she's she's mad. She's not happy. Uh, and you're probably not happy if you've come this far either with well, the Amber Spyglass, so sorry. Then again, part of why Britt is mad at us is because of the death of Lee Scoresby. But look, look, here he is in this chapter. We wouldn't hurt you Yo, permanently. Right. I still didn't get the closure I wanted for his girlfriend and him, right? But that's okay. That's okay. Maybe in another world, another <laughs> life. Like in another uh life. Jet Li's the one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Masterpiece. And again, if you are interested in coming over to that Discord, come hang out. Come hang out weekly and talk about his dark materials, the show, or the books. There's a great discussion at the end of those episodes, too, and that's happening at Saturdays. For the next four weeks, it's going to be Saturdays, 3 p.m. Eastern Time and on. Sometimes they're two hours, one hour, three hours. It depends who's there and who wants to chit-chat. I I know they've uh, gone overtime on some of them. Yeah. It's been, I mean, Pete's just doing a great job, and honestly, he's been doing so, so great that we've kind of been inspired for, I mean, how we might handle a couple of other series that... Maybe on the horizon as well in the future. Yeah, like that their other HBO book adaptation, story adaptation, right? Another great writer and director and writer and whatever who has sold the rights to his favorite thing off to someone else. We're talking about Carrie Bradshaw's and just like that. Oh my god, we're talking about Sam Levinson's Euphoria. No, I'm just kidding. It's George R. R. Martin's Hot D. Mm. It's his... Yeah. Hot Dragon. It's his House of the Dragon. You know, maybe George R. R. Martin's Hot D doesn't really have the ring I should be putting out I think there. it has the ring that you should be putting out there. But, I mean... We're floating yeah. it. We're floating, We're floating the idea. It. Yeah, more, this is not a binding contract. More events. Yeah. <laughs> Please do not hold more us. More events. We could be different. At the Discord. We've all been fucking kept apart for years and years and years and days and whatevers and pandemic lovatos mm-hmm. and... No one can see each other or talk to each other the way they want to. So it's been such a great time just getting to know some of our patrons and friends that listen to the cast or run other casts, right? Like uh, Double M from the Dust Podcast and Holly Hunt's Pants from the Dust Podcast. They have been so fun on the Discord and seeing them at our monthly brunches, which Marches has not been announced yet, but keep an eye out patrons for that. It's always fun. And, you know, if you're not quite ready to commit to that kind of thing, We get it. It is a lifetime membership, right? If you join the Discord server, I will never kick you off. Girl, come on. You're you're family. This is family. Unless you piss me off. Okay, Vin Diesel. Me Me over here. It's a little Vin Diesel, a little Sopranos. You know what I mean? Mm -mm. It's family. Uh, But if you're not ready for that level of commitment, we totally understand. And patrons in the Stranger tier and above actually get bonus episodes every month. And this month's is really exciting. Yes, this month is exciting. In terms of other changes that are happening at Girls Gone Canon, we are, of course, as you all know, branching out into other books, just as we did with His Dark Materials, but not necessarily in the same scope of time, you know, long term. We are covering Circe, but C-I-R-C-E, by Madeline Miller, for our bonus episode this month on Patreon. Yeah, a couple months ago, we did The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller. We had a blast talking about that, and that's patron-only right now. It could go public someday. Keep your eye out for that. You never know. 
may sacrifice you just to get to hear some great word because I love Madeline Miller. I'm excited. She's doing a Persephone book next. Yeah. Totally lit. Totally litty. Literature. Uh, but literature. <laughs> literature. We do put the lit oh my God. in literature. In anyway, clit. so okay. <laughs> we put the literature <laughs> into the God. I'm excited about Cersei by Madeline Miller. I really love the novel. It's actually my favorite of her two books of her kind of uh, re-delivering of Greek mythos. I really love it. I'm excited to share it with you guys. Please head over to patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon and you will be sure to get some updates in your feed when that goes live this month. Yes. But now, the abyss. But not the abyss. It's just abyss. It's just, everything's like a one- one word title very uh very cool this episode yes regarding the abyss there's a poem at the front As it's always. william blake we know him we know willie b Will Billy b be, be out here Billy b be at the front baby of these chapters billy blake oh my god baby billy blake <laughs> misbehaving <laughs> To baby Billy B. <laughs> we start abyss with the sun has left his blackness and found a fresher morning, and the fair moon rejoices in the clear and cloudless night. William Blake, gorgeous and Sorry, baby Billy Blake. refreshing. <laughs> baby Billy Blake, gorgeous, refreshing. Uh, like you can feel the moonlight yeah. cleanse you and your soul and all that, and that's actually kind of what this chapter is, right? They've made the long journey. And here they are. They are traveling in darkness through the stone. Only the light, the very faltering light of Lady Salmachia's dragonfly to guide them. Mm -hmm. Chevalier's dragonfly has died already, and Mm -hmm. they have found no food in the underworld. Wonder if they should have taken that food after all, I know, right? (laughs) Lyra holds Lady Salmachia's dragonfly, and Salmachia sits as well, feeding it biscuit crumbs and even some of her own blood. Lyra would have offered hers, but she has to concentrate on safely walking across the rocks. Yeah, I feel bad that Lyra didn't notice, but I don't know, just the dragonflies dying, all the focus on it. I think Pullman did a really good job of, like, conveying emotions through that. It's so sad. I know they're just, like, bugs, but, you know, it shows a strong bond between the riders and the dragonflies and, like, I don't know, really gives that sense of loss, even though I know, again, they're just bugs, but I feel it. There's something almost really twistedly, like, I don't know, it's a certain depth that, like, demons are one thing, but caring for another human being, an individual, that selfless generosity and generosity in general, like, giving to another individual like that is is almost more pure Mm. than demons, because demons are just yourself. That's a great point, Like, in many aspects, they're a version of you, so, like... Loving yourself, loving your demon, that's normal, that's a, that's a normal everyday thing, but loving someone else and, and kind of giving them that love and that respect, that's beautiful and that's different and special. And, and part of yourself. For, yeah, part of yourself. For Salmaki to feed her blood to yeah. her dragonfly who's dying and will die, like, there's no food here for it, but, like, knowing... And she's dying, too. This is the end for Salmaki. Like, yeah. she is in her final days. We know this because that's what's been explained about the Galavaspians to us. That's sad that she's willing to give her own life force, kind of like Lyra giving her own life force to the children crowding her here. 
before they leave. Absolutely. No Name is leading everyone through the caves, kind of being like a psychopomp, but on the way out. I'm going to say something controversial here. It's interesting that they have to find another way out and they just couldn't go out the front entrance. That there wasn't like a rebellion of like, what if we just like got rid of the gatehouse? But anyway, no names leading them through the caves to the nearest point uh, so that they can cut a window out and the golem of ghosts are following. No name tells everyone to follow. And if you are able to see no name, then listen for no name. If you can't hear, then just feel your way forward. And first of all, I'm kind of starting to wonder is no names like name at all inspired by that song a horse with no name i don't know i like oh i no, i'm not joking I, I i think it's a good song <sighs> maybe it's other people don't that's fine but also no name emphasizing that one needs to rely and trust their senses no matter like what you have if you can't see you know like do this right i think it ties in really well with what we're gonna see of mary next chapter where she has to think of her memories full of those senses and sensations so you have that like through line between the chapters and then coming back to like you were saying like maybe they should have gotten they should have brought that food i'm like damn how long have like lyra and will been without food and like down here because they did refuse some of that food right in the suburbs of the dead, if I'm not mistaken. And they are pushing their physical limits. I mean, they are climbing. I'm not, like, the best. I've gotten better at climbing, but, like, I'm not the best. So if the dragonflies, like, then they are probably, like, I don't know. Seems rough. I I have to say, all I'm thinking about when you say climbing is Pokemon Arceus. Oh, my God. Is it Arceus? Arceus? Yeah. Um, the climbing on the mountain sides, it's very difficult. I'm having a very hard mm-hmm. time. Um, life is really hard. hard. If you wanted to know how I'm doing, sidebar, this is part of our tomorrow conversation. We'll talk about Pokemon tomorrow when we record. Um, we will. I'm having a hard That's time. Exciting. Lots of mountain tops. Yeah, spoilers. Well, I'm not spoiling things I, for Arceus, so. I guess eating the food does feel like doing the deal with the devil now looking back Mm -hmm. right not specifically but it it does seem like oh very pomegranate right for persephone and hades that oh you eat this you're stuck down here so i'm glad they didn't but there's also so much misfortune that seems to be following that that they didn't yeah they're just like i mean it doesn't sound like the children are starving we don't hear that but I mean, obviously they're pretty tired by now. And at first, I think when I was younger, when I read through these, I kind of just like took it for granted. I was like, maybe somewhere assumed that like when they enter the land of the dead, they don't feel that hunger. But I mean, clearly they do. This is this is pushing their stamina. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because of that, Lyra is feeling as weak as the dragonfly, but a familiar voice speaks just in time. <gasps> It's Mr. Scoresby! In the faint light, she can make out his form and smile, and he comforts her, but tells her that there are people out there working some trouble aimed at her. He asks if this is the boy with the knife, and Will looks at him, eager to finally meet the famous Lee Scoresby, only for his eyes to wander and be like, friendship over with Mr. Scoresby, that's my dad, it's the ghost behind him. John Perry. So Will is speechless, but his father tells him there's no time to talk. Uh, I guess it's a good thing he's speechless and that Will must do exactly as he says. Take the knife and find a place where a lock has been taken from Lyra's hair. 
I love this so much. Lyra touches her hair. It's kind of a weird moment. She's like, what the fuck? Don't fucking cut my hair. And Zach like, loves my hair. I don't want an Wrong undercut. <laughs> <laughs> it's not in style down here, Will. <sighs> she touches her hair and Will's like, no, put your hand down. And in the very faint gleam, he sees this patch of hair shorter at her temple than the rest. Mind-blowing. John says, cut the shorter hair down to her scalp very carefully. Every hair, collect them and open another world and close it at once. Uh, so Will does so. First of all, the, the then the idea is that that hair leads to the blow up. So that hair in another world, like what what did you just cause? You know? I don't know. Like, what did you just destroy, I wonder William? that. William. Billy. Baby William. Billy. Perry. <laughs> Baby Billy Perry! <laughs> ah! uh, praise be to hey! What did you just destroy in another world? And there's also something that stands out, especially in these three chapters, right? I think these three chapters, we've had a lot of luck with these chapters all as we choose three standing out so distinctly in their parallels to one another. So such a testament to Pullman's writing on this. Thanks, Phil. And it stands out that in the contrast of John Perry, who for a decade, all he's thought about is getting back to his family, right? Mm -hmm. All he's wanted was his family. All he's wanted was his baby boy that he left his behind. Baby Billy. He's craved his <laughs> losing over Eliana. All he's craved has been seeing his child and seeing what he's left and not given his child, right? And, and like owning up to that even in some aspects. But yet the first moment he sees him, he does not selfishly take him in. He doesn't absorb him in. He says bluntly the truth. He says, this is what you need to hear. Right now, there's no time for me to blubber over you. Will, you need to do this thing. It's very important. It could danger the person that you're in love with. And then even after this, right, he doesn't get gushy, so to say. He says, Will, there's no time for this and there's more you need to know about your situation and what's going on. Then you get to the last chapter of this trio, Midnight. And Azrael has this moment out of nowhere, this moment where he's like, why, yes, Lyra, my daughter, is so fantastic. The savior? Yes, yes, I know her. I raised her, actually. She's my daughter. She's my everything. I always knew that kid was going places, right? Like, he straight up has this whole, like, my daughter's the fated one, and we're leading armies in her name. And she was always going to be great. Meanwhile, you have Coulter contemplating, being like, oh, wow, so nothing matters? Lyra's safe? Cool, I could die. I'm good with death, right? Like, she's contemplating her own death. There's just something so interesting that John doesn't gush over it, and Asriel's like, interesting that my interests have now aligned with my daughter being the chosen one. It's so glaring, in my opinion, the contrast between them in these three chapters. There's definitely a contrast, for sure. I, I'm not sure how Asriel and Marisa would have been his parents, but I think I think John Perry could have been a good dad if he were there. But he got lost. The fact that he is not just like gushing over Will, and as much as both Will and John have wanted that with every vein of their existence, they both have wanted to be gushing over the other, right? I mean, that's like a, a natural human want to be loved. Yeah. Uh, and then just Asriel 
on this other plane. Be- and he even says, he's like, and the boy with the knife. I love that boy. I would love to shake that boy's hand that wields the knife, right? Like, he totally has this whole, like, spiel in the third chapter where he's just like, William Parry, what a fine man. It just is like, as somebody who's a noted, like, John Perry questioner, I am a noted questioner of John Perry's motives. I don't always believe in John Perry. Joppery. I'm a Joppery See, and that's the other thing. I'm a Jopery. I thought it was... Anyways, I get it. I get it. I I don't know. I just never used to be into him, but just this contrast made me go, oh, John Perry rocks. Okay, cool. 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 Yeah. Azriel... Uh, you know, we'll get to my take later. I think, like, I mean, everyone knows that I think Asriel, like, we are left wanting with him, even though, I don't know, I guess. Look, if the man fell down a cliff, like, tomorrow, I wouldn't be sad. Yeah, so we'll we'll get to those thoughts in, in a bit, but for now, the ground is shaking, and a deep grinding, growling noise comes through. The world around them is shifting. Everyone's upended. Rock tumbles and rolls with them, but finally it settles and everyone checks on each other. Everyone is okay, but the bomb went off in another world, and as the dust clears, John tells them to look. There's a faint golden glimmer, like misty rain, falling around them, enough to light the path ahead. I actually think this is really interesting, that the that this is so powerful that something happens that they're able to suddenly see dust with their, like, naked eyes, whereas, like, Mary had to spend the whole chapter, you know finagling to do that um anyway (laughs) so the dust is flowing into a black emptiness and dies an abyss and they are merely climbing on loose barely balanced rocks on the edge of the abyss and there's no way out except for forward it flows into a black emptiness and dies into the abyss and they are merely climbing on loose barely balanced rocks on the edge of the abyss very very safe there's no way out except for forward and They carefully must edge forward against the abyss, and only the harpies are unafraid, flying ahead. Because, I mean, yeah, they've got wings. Good for them. But, you know, it's really sinking in for me, this read-through now. Like, how strong that bomb is. That it just, like, explodes across worlds. I feel like I really greatly underestimated the bomb. Yeah, yeah. Like, in totality in the story, the first time I read, I- I've reread once, but it was a clumsy reread, and it was like, no. Uh, uh, when I first read it, I, I mean, I think the uh, the tension of the bomb and the suspense really takes away any sort of logic or thought. Like, yeah. Like, head empty. It was very intense. It reminds me of this other story that I read called... It's called Worm. It's an... It's a like Dune? No. Uh no. But <laughs> it it is called Worm. It's also I think part of called like the Parahumans universe. It's like an online serial. It was really long, but um anyway, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Cuz I don't want to uh... give away too much, but Lyra feels the alethiometer safe in her pocket and finds Roger's face, giving him words of courage. She tells him to not be afraid. To keep going and moving and Will and Lyra will keep on too. She tells him that she might not be able to look back at him because she has to watch her step. So she has to trust that Roger will come steadily along with them. Look, I know I say it a lot on the podcast. 
Like, all the time. Like, I always talk about Lyra and Orpheus and Eurydice, right? Like, whether it's the discussion, Orpheus. whether it's the main body of the podcast. Orpheus. <laughs> yeah. Hashtag Hadestown. Uh, if you haven't listened to Hadestown, you should. It's very good. There's this part of Hadestown where Eurydice is out in the cold, right? And she's, like, getting attacked and shit. And somebody steals her food and her clothes. And she's like, give it back! It's my favorite part of the whole musical. It just cracks me up every time. I feel bad because I'm like, oh no, Eurydice. But like at the same time, I'm like, Eurydice, shut up. Give it back. Orpheus has a connection with Lyra. As I've mentioned 8,300,000 times before in the podcast, you've been here, you live here, you know what's up. Orpheus and his liar. Oh. Right? Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. And Lyra, the liar herself. Mm. It does feel like this little retelling of the myth with the slight twist and kind of... It's trending in a positive way. Orpheus gets to free Eurydice from the underworld. Lyra's Orpheus. Eurydice is Roger. At least Roger's spirit, Eurydice's spirit, gets to be free, even if he can't be with her in the end. Even if they cannot spend the rest of their lives together doing Lyra and Roger things. They had the experience, their dust, their consciousness had the experience together, and now Roger gets to go free and be free. And without spoilers, I won't say anything about it, but it makes the ending of The Amber Spyglass all that more fulfilling when you think about it. Like, emotionally, fulfilling sounds positive. I don't want you to think I'm saying it's a positive thing. It's a fulfilling thing emotionally. It makes the emotional tension and cohesion just so strong uh it's a sad story it's also sad i'm i'm, I'm smiling right now <laughs> yeah a lot happens at the end <laughs> but uh as you can see a lot's happening in these chapters too right we're, we're ramping up to that but yes absolutely just like yes to all this orpheus stuff like i know that pullman has even said like he's inspired but it just comes through so strongly in these moments like, the fact that she told him, I can't look back at you, that's Orpheus and Eurydice right there. Like, that that was intentional. Yeah. It was intentional. I mean, she does for a second, and, and then she fucking almost falls over. We're gonna then get she there. fucking falls yeah. and almost you dies forever, so. That's my girl. <sighs> and that's the thing. They've been on this horrible, rocky path, which is like, what? Like, the path to faith, right? Like, you just have to have faith, and you have to keep walking faith. above <laughs> the... <laughs> I gotta have faith, the faith, the faith, the bad. I don't like that song. I don't know why I sing that. Oh, I love that song. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! It reminds me of my wedding. This is a road to faith, right? They're like trotting along, falling off of, and none of them know how long it's been. It feels like forever. It's nauseating, and, and they're balancing along, and the, everybody's following Will and Lyra in hopes of freedom. But at the same time, some of these ghosts don't really trust them. And they they whisper. You hear them going, we're frightened. How much farther? Are we there yet? This place sucks. You hear all this shit along the way. Yeah. And I mean, not all of it is from like, you know, the kids, right? And it actually reminds me a little bit of, you know, the story of Exodus. And, you know, like how the Israelites were telling Moses, like, Moses, what the fuck? Are we there yet? Are we done? Um, and some of them did complain that they were like, we should have stayed in Egypt. And Moses is like, no, we're going to make it. And then he fucks it all up and they're out there for 40 years. Yeah. You know, it's, 
in other terms, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, whatever, reference Eliana. But no, you're right, because this is like pure savior shit going on. Yeah. Right? Like every one of these chapters is like, Lyra's the savior, or Lyra was a gemstone. Did you mean, you know, yeah, um, or Lyra? Lyra. It is, and she's being very much, I mean, with what's about to happen with no name, or sorry, the generous one, she's also being very positioned as a Jesus-y character, as usual. Uh, not just Eve, she's also Jesus, she's got mm-hmm. a lot on her shoulders. I, I think you're on to something there with the Moses theme, too. That is, everybody complaining, uh, not unlike what, like Danny in Aeswath and Clash of Kings, right? Actually, though, literally, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, literally, that's her. So there's your glimpse at ASWAF POVs moving forward, everyone. Do with that what you will. <laughs> so, I wish I had, like, a better joke about the musician No Name, but I don't. Um, no Name's great. Anyways. It's Arya Stark. <laughs> well, yeah, so No Name's great. Go listen to her. But also, um, Will wants to tell all these ghosts off. Fuck off, ghosts! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> fuck off, ghosts. Shut the fuck up, you ghosts! You're dead. You're dead. Um, but Lyra holds his arm, telling him they're just unhappy and frightened, and Slovakia gives a very calm, clear speech. I love our lady Slovakia, and tells everyone to be patient and cheerful, and it strengthens everyone, and they find they're able to just keep going. I love Slovakia's growth. That she starts off as this frigid little Thumbelina, and here she is, right? Like, you get in the beginning, the girl is more trusting. I think we could win her around. She's innocent. She loves easy. It's crazy to think she begins with that manipulative kind of stern, looking for the holes in Lyra's strength. But yet here she is in the final hours, giving a speech to all of the ghost children, not just Lyra, right? Like, this is this is for all of them, to keep them going, to keep them cheerful, And at one point, Lyra and Will realize after this, they're like, we can hear the wind, but we can't feel it, which Mm. is interesting. Part of me's like, you're feeling braver. But then the other part of me's like, oh, timey-wimey, hole in space and fabric of being and humanity shit. Right. Not great. Will theorizes. He's like, oh, so that hole below is kind of like the hole when I cut a window, a Mm. similar edge. He can actually see the glimmer that, that makes it look like that just where the rocks are falling but down there it's not another world like what he's seen it's it's different and he's like oh man i wish i could close that hole damn i'd be like hurling at this yeah i i don't know i'd probably just like stand there and be like that's it that's it for me we're here on this ledge that's it (laughs) but yes lyra comments that well, that's concerning because you haven't closed every window that you made. And he says, no, but he should. And some he couldn't. Things sometimes like go wrong and they definitely go wrong when he leaves them open. And he's like, well, a hole that's that big, like it's wrong. Something bad is going to happen. And I'm just like, hmm. hmm. What could it mean? Okay, alternatively, maybe not something bad. Maybe something good. Hmm. 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 So while they go to chat, Tialis talks with Lee Scoresby and John Perry, which I love this. I love this little trio, them getting together with their war stories. It's got to be great. 
John Perry says they shouldn't go with the rest of the ghosts, even though Lee is like, my atoms are aching to join the living universe. John Perry says they'll be needed in battle. They should hold themselves back in case they can make all the difference. Tialis is like, I don't know that we could actually help. We're, you guys are ghosts. And John Perry and Lee think, well, there's going to be ghosts in the army, right? Like, there will be specters in the enemy's army. They eat demons, and our demons are gone. We could actually do something good here. Interesting. John Perry asks Chevalier, do you think you'll live long enough to make it with us? Tialis is like, I only have a few days left. Salmachia may be a little longer, but our exile won't be permanent, at least, thanks to the children. He says, and I say this, I quote this with actual tears in my eye holes, I have been proud to help them. (laughs) You know you're getting, like, in the last third of the story, right? When there's shit like this, you're like, oh god. I know. Fuck. Now everyone sees like why I was so confused. It's like why are they being so mean? <laughs> I was like, why are the Galavastians being so mean? They're our friends. These are we the real Galavastians, y'all. Yeah. Like, this is what they're like. This is it right here. The beginning Galavastians, we don't know them. We Legitimately don't. do not know them. <laughs> they move on though, right? So the abyss below is threatening to eat them forever, and eventually Lyra is too far in her thoughts. And she gets a very sudden vertigo because she's like thinking about falling forever and ever. Oh, just like her mommy. She sways, almost reaching for Will. It's true. She thinks about it in the third chapter. She says so. That's true. She sways, almost reaching for Will, but she stops because he's too far away. And she remembers the last time she could remember really getting a bad vertigo. And it's the roof of Jordan. Roger actually had been there and it kept keeps, keeps her focused. It keeps her focused on not falling and defying the vertigo. And she looks back at Roger, reminding them both of that moment right now. But Roger instead, whoa, what a moment. Roger instead is like, Lyra, be careful. You're not dead like we are. What a moment, because Lyra has never had to consider that in her life with Roger. She's always been the the boss that defies life, right? Mm, well, yeah. now Roger's out here like, Lyra, you better be careful. Lyra. Yeah, I mean, Roger's been through a lot including death and i mean maybe to be i feel like we discussed this in a previous episode maybe the one that you just mentioned right of mrs culture feeling a similar sensation previously uh the idea of the call of the void or l'appel du vide and um apparently there's like science behind this feeling and it has to do with like signals getting mixed in your brain where your brain's telling you like be careful don't do this thing and then you your brain like mixes it up and is like, do this thing, step forward. And you're like, what the fuck did I just do? So yeah. And I think there's also an interesting twist here in that it's kind of also coming from Lyra wishing to show off for Roger. That's what the text says to us. So I'm kind of like, this was like a bizarre moment of how to reread, but maybe there's an aspect of it of, you know, Lyra's trying to recapture those times, as you said, right? Like, things have changed between her and Roger and that dynamic. She's trying to recapture it. And it's almost a caution of, like, Lyra, that time of your life is over. That was a different time. It was your childhood. And now there are perils to trying to regress. It's true, though. Like, now you have to grow up. Innocence lost. It's mm, over. Paradise it's experience lost. time. Paradise Lost, Innocence Lost, Baby Billy Blake. <laughs> Baby uh, Billy Blake, Baby Billy Perry. 
Praise be to them. It, it is, though. It's innocence lost. Like, it is the funniest moment to me that Roger says that to her because mm. it's like, Lyra, will you behave from Roger? Yeah, right. Roger, her most faithful disciple that accompanied her on every bullshittery around the entire college that she created. He really did enable a lot. <laughs> well, he was also like yeah. too afraid not to, though. Let's be fair. I mean, he was having Lyra's a force of a nature, way. dude. I, he was like, but yeah, but that's the thing is she made him alive, and now he's keeping her alive. Yeah, I guess she made him alive, but she also led him to his death. So yeah, well, you know that's not fair. It's not her fault. It isn't. Um, but she feels like it is, and that's big sad. It is. Okay, so we have this great scene with the harpy, with no name, who brings yes. Lyra, limp, saving her life, into Will's arms, and they cling to one another, whispering comfort to one another. Everybody is blessing the harpy, like, oh my god, you're amazing, and Tialis and Salmachia praise the harpy and call her generous one. Yes. As soon as Lyra is able to move, she reaches out to the harpy and kisses her ravaged face repeatedly. Once the terror subsides, they set off again, testing things slowly and moving ahead. I love this scene. It is so beautiful. Lyra kissing the face of the ravaged harpy, right? And the, the gross boogers away and that like... Yeah, right? Lyra's able to melt it all away. Uh, and it's very much something... I mean, again, akin to Jesus. We are talking mm. Jesus here. It reminds me of Isaiah 32, 8, where you have kind of this line about, but the generous one devises what is generous, and by generous deeds he rises up. There's kind of this importance of God's generosity being put onto display here, especially in the face of these wastelands that the CCD and the Magisterium and in turn Enoch and turn Metatron have created. Right, the Metatron's regime has created so much imbalance in the world, and it makes me think of kind of some of these flashes of the impoverished that Pullman likes to put in. Right, that he puts in these moments of like industrialization, slavery worlds where we see people with like chains over them and dogs mm. that are suffering from like nuclear fucking radiation. Some really like metal shit that we see in blips in these books, and there's some a lot of the books of dust. Yeah, that's true. Lots of alloy going on here. Some of it is like in books. Some of it is in the outer dust books too. But it's interesting that you see the CCD, Metatron, Magisterium, the Authority, whoever you want to call it, everyone contributing mm. to that industrialization and that slavery. And somehow in like all of that horror... We actually find beauty in the harpy, right? The harpy who's flying over this wasteland, helping to guide the children and the ghosts out of it. And it reminds me of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples? Jesus washing the feet of his disciples and Lyra kissing the face of the harpy to melt away everything. Uh, you know, Jesus washing the feet of his disciples was really interesting because you got different responses from his disciples when he did so. They didn't have anyone there to wash their feet, and they'd been walking through the desert, and their feet were calloused and gross and muddy and sandy and just, you know, thick. And he chose to express humility, doing the work of what his disciples thought was made for lowly servants. And his attitude of servanthood was kind of in contrast to his disciples. They had been arguing about who of them was the greatest, right? They were too busy trying to claim power and figure out who was Jesus's best disciple and since there was no servant there to wash their feet 
it never really occurred to them that they could just wash each other's feet. You know, that you could just help one another and love one another. So when Jesus stooped to this task, they were all stunned. And the only disciple that was able to say anything was Peter, who was really uncomfortable about it. And he was like, you'll, you shall never wash my feet, Jesus. And Jesus said something to him that probably shocked him, right? He says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Uh, and Peter, who was kind of, you know, he had a very genuine love for the Lord. It made him go, well, please give me a real full foot washing. And Jesus then explains the true meaning that Peter has experienced the cleansing of salvation and doesn't need to get washed again in a spiritual sense necessarily, that salvation is a one-time act of faith. But the lifelong process of sanctification, of, of keeping yourself clean, washing the stain of sin away, Peter and all of the disciples, maybe not Judas, uh, who never really belonged technically to Jesus, they only need this as a temporal cleansing. I think that's interesting, like the, the connection you've drawn between that act and Lyra's. I mean, as you'll recall from our episode with our friend Cassidy, turns out vultures smell fucking nasty. And likely no name does too. And for Lyra to do this act of that's so intimate, right? With no name kissing no name's face. And um the context also like within this washing, this foot washing of Jesus washing his disciples' feet during that time, is that as you called out, right, the feet were nasty at that time. This was actually considered like one of like the basest acts one could do because feet were so dirty during i mean like you're wearing sandals you're walking around in it your feet are in everything right there's shit all over the roads things like that so for your leader to debase himself in such a way that act of humility was a very big deal and and yeah an act of love and intimacy so i think there's really a, a strong connection between what you've drawn here yeah i i, I don't know if i'm thinking of something else too from you know, catechism and all the worlds that I've shoved behind. Yeah, I learned cabinets, that in church. The <laughs> yeah, like I'm like, I feel like there's something else that I'm missing of a face washing. And there's Mary, also like Mary um, Magdalene tones. Yeah. Yes, Mary Magdalene and washing Jesus's face. There's a lot of that too. I didn't really want to go into it too far, but. Yeah, I mean, no name, I guess, kind of. Well, it's the other way around, but no name fits that role, helping with everything. Well, eventually, finally, a way out appears. The slope gets easier, and there's a fold in the cliff of the wall. And once they climb farther up, Will thinks, hmm, I should test out the knife, but the harpy says, no, not yet, keep going. So they carry on until they get to a narrow area in the cliff. Will finds a space, but before he can cut, his father's ghost edges forward. <sighs> it's so sad. Will thinks that this is goodbye, so it's not that sad yet, because it's not quite yet, is, um... Uh, because John Perry reveals that we're actually going to stay back for a bit in Azrael's world to help with the fight. But he also reveals that they need to go, the children need to go to Azrael's world too, to find their demons again, because their demons are there. And, you know, it's very convenient for the plot and for the children that John Perry knows this because he used to be a shaman and he learned to see things. And he says that you know, Alethe, Lyra's alethiometer would tell you the exact same thing. And, I mean, again, it's just, like, insane So to no me. need to check it. I know, No right? need to check it. It is very convenient. It I is have convenient. to say I'm glad you said that, because I'm like, hmm, 
convenient plot. Exactly. Like earlier when I was like, very convenient that John Perry's like, ooh, we gotta give, yeah, Lyra a stylish new hairdo. We gotta make Lyra look like Skrillex for a second. And so, yeah. Anyway, for the plot, it's the most powerful force in the world. More powerful than John Perry. And I don't know how he's able to see things from the world dead. I guess that's how powerful he is. Powerful as the plot. He tells them the most critical part of all, right? Like this, this does give a little bit of background. Mm-hmm. Sir Charles Latrum, as they may have known him, uh, had to return periodically to his world and could not permanently live in their world. The Guild of the Torre Deli Angeli found the same thing to be true. And John Perry did too. When he was in the Marines in his world, healthy as a clam. Ten years later, he walked out of his world and his health began to fail. So that's important. But I also want to point out something else in regards to, again, the plot. So if John Perry knew that Charles Latrum, a.k.a. Lord Boreal, was also living life as Charles Latrum, why did he not figure out how Charles Latrum was getting all the way back to John Perry's world? Or is this something that he only figured out once he was in the underworld because he, like, comes across Latrim's ghost and he's like, oh, interesting, you harassed my wife and son. <laughs> I mean, it's not like he has much else to do, right? In the right land now. of the dead, yeah, start fights. Think. Yeah, do crimes. And I will say, it's not like he's had much else to do in the last five years, but think, right? Uh, I mean, his health started deteriorating, not, it wasn't ten years in that his health started deteriorating. He doesn't like pinpoint it, but it's obvious that he started to feel some issues from the, the traveling between worlds Yeah, at some point on the way to 10 years, because we see him 10 years later and he's not great. I'm just saying that he could have asked, I guess, could he have asked Charles Latrum like, or like figured it out? I don't know. I've been like, that man has a window. Could I use that window to get home? Anyway. I don't think the it plot. mattered at that point. The plot. You know what I mean? I <laughs> yeah. think he was so far into the place where he was as a shaman. Like, yeah. I mean, he found coping mechanisms, which I think is something that, like, maybe our children here are our children. Maybe they'll have to come up with coping mechanisms. That's true. We don't know. And as we, I guess, discussed you know, in previous episodes, he saw, like, a purpose that he needed to do to build a better world for his kid or something. Exactly. It, it was sacrificing for the greater good. Which Azrael will try to comment on himself. <laughs> we have this passage. And this is the reason for all those things. Your demon can only live its full life in the world it was born in. Elsewhere, it will sicken and die. We can travel if there are openings into other worlds, but we can only live in our own. Lord Azrael's great enterprise will fail in the end for the same reason. We have to build the Republic of Heaven where we are, because for us, there is no elsewhere. Will, my boy, you and Lyra can go out now for a brief rest. You need that and you deserve it, but then you must come back into the dark with me and Mr. Scoresby for one last journey. Yes. I will follow you into the dark by Deathcap for Cutie is playing very softly in the background as we get to the last third of the book. It and is. It's just going to play all the time on repeat. It is. I was like. Acoustic version. Acoustic version. Did I blow that uh, episode description too early? I don't know. 
but I feel like every one of these episodes is that yeah, song. that's true. I should just like post subsequent like verses for each one of these episode descriptions. I'm into it. Go restructure. <laughs> this is a beautiful line. Uh, all of it is beautiful, yes. but we have to build the Republic of Heaven where we are because for us there is no elsewhere. For people like Asriel, there is elsewhere. Right? Azrael's been able to pick the perfect setting for the perfect party and the perfect shooters. But everybody doesn't have that opportunity. Everybody isn't born into having that opportunity and everybody doesn't get to have the contacts to make those opportunities. Right now, these ghosts know they have nothing else. This is their Republic of Heaven they have to build as they Mm -hmm. walk out of that arch, right? And into life, back into the world. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Absolutely. And I mean, I think there's that, right? Like, even, you know, obviously I have, like, my qualms with it, like, on a larger societal level, but the message of it is good, you know? Like, no matter where you are, you, it is your life, and you must live with it. You must live it as you will. Um, Sanctuary can be wherever you make it. Yeah, and you have the power, right? You can try and make it. Make it yeah, for it takes and a people. Yeah, as you know, like it takes doing. one person to make a thought and a people to make a thought happen for everyone. Mm-hmm. That is the hopefulness to grasp from Azrael's plot, right? Like as much as I hate that motherfucking fuckboy, and John Perry, and I've come way more to terms with John Perry. I'd like to just like look at the character evolution of Chloe for a moment, right? I don't think we talk enough about Chloe when cool. we talk about these books, but I want to talk about Chloe <laughs> as a shaman. Oh my god, I am ashamed of my reaction. Uh, So, Will and Lyra exchange a look, and Will cuts open a window into this most beautiful sight of dazzling stars, shine of water, great trees, and he widens that window as far as he can. He can get like six to eight ghosts in that width, and they begin to walk out of the land of the dead. The first ghosts nervously enter, and they're brimming with hope. And the excitement flows through the long line of ghosts behind them, looking in wonder at the first stars that some of them have seen in centuries. The first ghost to leave the world of the dead was Roger. He took a step forward and turned to look back at Lyra and laughed in surprise as he found himself turning into the night, the starlight, the air, and then he was gone leaving behind such a vivid little burst of happiness that Will was reminded of the bubbles in a glass of champagne. The other ghosts followed Roger, and Will and Lyra fell, exhausted onto the dew-laden grass, every nerve in their bodies blessing the sweetness of the good soil, the night air, and the stars. (sighs) She did it. She fucking did it, Eliana. She She did it. She got Roger's soul out. She got his spirit out. She freed him. She freed them. She freed yeah. all of them. She did it. That was, that to me, like, I know this isn't the climax of the story. I know this isn't the climax of the story in some aspects. Kind of it is, is it, it is. Yeah, in some ways. And she got out, right? She was, she and Will, they did it. They got out. And I mean, it's literally like one of the best passages and one of the most satisfying, I think, moments in the whole series. And 
you know, earlier you were talking about Orpheus, and, you know, there's definitely shades. Shades? Uh, of that of that story, right? Many that you pointed out, and also, again, in that aspect of Lyra cannot look back, but I almost feel like there's an aspect of the myth that's, like, rewritten with a sort of triumph in that act of defiance and desire as Roger is the one who turns back to look at Lyra, right? With that joy, and because rather than Orpheus turning around, it's, it's the dead Eurydice, that shade of Eurydice. And yes, she's brought back to death. She's lost again in that moment in a way. She's not really fully brought back to life, but I mean, that Eurydice, that Roger, now he's like going to be found everywhere, right? He's everywhere now. He's part of all of it. And, you know, because like while, yeah, Orpheus, I'm going to say like, yeah, Orpheus turning back, of course, that's like a big failure. And like, that's the whole point. That's why everyone loves telling this story still like now. Like, that's why it's such got such lasting power. But I think it also has such lasting power because... It might have been one of the most human things in the world to do, right? The the longing and excitement of just finally being able to behold, to see, and finally sense, like, your beloved, like, we made it, right? And that's how Roger feels in this moment. He's made it. It's him turning around. That's such a human act. And I think there's something wonderful that instead of experiencing loss, it's joy. Hmm. Songs of experience and innocence, oh. all in one. Right? It is the exact answer yes. to the lost little boy, lost little girl, the vapor upon the air. They're misbehaving. Misbehaving. <laughs> that is that is the victory, misbehaving. Actually, well, we leave is. Lyra this week with that. Like that is the most ultimate. I, I love that end of a chapter for yes. Lyra because the next two chapters have no Lyra in first person. No, you know, and yeah. we're getting to the end of the book where you want your heroine on every page. So, I think that's a, a great way to leave us in suspense until next month's chapter when we come back to Lyra. But for now, we're going to head over to Mary Malone into mm. chapter twenty-seven platform where we open the chapter with a poem from andrew marvell it's actually stanza seven of the garden by andrew marvell hmm. my soul into the boughs does glide there like a bird it sits and sings then wets and combs its silver wings i love this poem it's gorgeous imagery you kind of feel as if you are in eden which is very much uh the beginning of this chapter Right, Mary levitating outside of her body, seeing the wonders about her before the horrors as well, mixed in there. Yes. And the language and prose is actually really akin to Plotinus's Enneads, in my opinion. Romantic, beautiful, mystical, magical. You know, during the Commonwealth period, Andrew Marvell was a colleague and friend of John Milton. So that kind of flows, right? I feel like all of these beautiful poems that he quotes at the top are all best buddies with each other talking about existence and depression in life. So perfect, perfect for these books. My personal favorite stanzas from this poem are No white nor red was ever seen, so amorous as this lovely green. Fond lovers, cruel as their flame, cut in these trees their mistress's name. Little alas they know or heed, how far these beauties hers exceed. Fair trees, Wheresoe'er your barks I wound, no name shall but your own be found. When we have run our passion's heat, love hither makes his best retreat. 
The gods who mortal beauty chase, still in a tree did end their race. Apollo hunted Daphne so, only that she might laurel grow, and panted after Syrinx's speed, not as a nymph, but for a reed. Gorgeous imagery, very pleasant, very floating, and it leads us perfectly in to the Amber Spyglass's 27th chapter. Yes, absolutely. Um, I love what you're saying about Eden, and here we go. Here we go. The Malefa <laughs> worked quickly to build Mary a platform. Within two days, it's built and lifted into place, and when she climbs it, she feels physically the happiest she's ever been. Looking down at the dense greenery, the rich blue sky, the breeze, the scent of flowers, and the bird song. If she could have stopped thinking, she would have, but unfortunately, she's there to think. So, she uses the spyglass to watch the drifting shadow particles, the same ones that had passed through all the worlds alike, and presuming that this is the same as what she studies in her universe, let alone the same shadows in every universe. We have a quote of... 300 years ago, the Royal Society was set up, the first true scientific society in her world. Newton was making his discoveries about optics and gravitation. 300 years ago in Lyra's world, someone invented the alethiometer. At the same time in that strange world through which she'd come to get here, the subtle knife was invented. And like, yeah, it's like cool, and we're finally getting all that stuff about the 300 years, you know, like all coming together in these chapters, and we're like, oh, it means something. But I, I personally, this is just like, on a personal aspect as a reader, I'm kind of like meh on the assertion that like the royal society is the first true scientific society like in our world. I don't know. It seems a little Eurocentric. We definitely had people who were like doing experiments in philosophy and things like that prior to that that weren't like necessarily in Europe so I mean to be fair to be fair these books are pretty Eurocentric I no I know I agree I agree I understand that I'm just like I just wanted to get that off my chest now if Eliana if you were willing to time travel back to the 90s and have a chat with Phil I would love to record that and put <laughs> that on this podcast From but six year old me hello Mr. Pullman! What is that? Are you a bird? Uh, no, I agree. It, it's. I'm glad we get the actual Doctor. understanding now. Like, oh, this is what happened across all worlds. But does it matter? It does it from like a world building aspect. Like, that's cool. It's cool for lore. Yeah. And I lore like lore. lore. Lore's fun. I mean, I, it's not, like, the thing that I'm, obviously, like, as we've discussed, probably, like, in A Song of Ice and Fire or whatever. It's, like, not, you know, my big driver. But it's fun. I like lore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. I, I do like lore, and I don't know. I like lore. I think it works. But I do get what you mean, that I'm like, okay, and? Yeah. I'm like, it's fun <laughs> in the story, but I'm just like, really? I don't know. So... Well, and Mary is thinking about it, to be fair. She's thinking about it a little bit, too. Maybe as much as you are. She's laying on the planks, swaying in the breeze, holding the spyglass up, watching the sparkles drift, and she thinks, what had happened 300 years ago? Was it the cause of dust or the other way around? It was the heart she drifts of off with her thoughts. No. Oh, my God. <laughs> she drifts off with her fucking <laughs> thoughts. And suddenly... She snaps awake and she panics. Something had happened to the dust wind. 
instead of the, the slow drift that she's used to, the Margaritaville pace going on, it races like a river in a flood. She realizes she's no longer on the platform. She's drifting above her slumbering body, and she can't bring herself back. The dust is streaming along as if pouring over an invisible edge, carrying her from her body, and she flings herself mentally, trying to remember feelings of being alive. Her friend tells trunk, bacon and eggs, climbing rocks, roasting coffee. Little by little, she finds herself easing back down, the dust slowing down as well. So this moment of Mary feeling disconnected from her body and then panicking, but like using physical sensations to return and be in the moment actually reminds me a lot of like some of the grounding techniques for dealing with anxiety attacks because I deal with that. And here's essentially like the one that I kind of use slash know. And this is like kind of summarized from the University of Rochester. I There might be like different versions, but this is kind of it. Like the acknowledge five things you see around you, right? It could be a pen, a spot on the ceiling, but like five things you see. Then acknowledge four things that you can touch around you. Acknowledge three things you hear. Acknowledge two things you can smell. And acknowledge one thing you can taste. And it's basically like using physical sensations to return to yourself to like this moment instead of like spiraling, right? And as we can see, physical experience and enjoying it in general, right? Living with those sensations is such a big part of the thesis of these books. I love this aspect of the chapter because it's also quite a mixture of lucid dreaming in some mm. aspects, right? But also sleep paralysis in a few ways, right? Oh, when she starts to yeah, panic yeah, yeah. a little bit. Uh, and we've talked a little bit about some of the mindset you have to be in for the alethiometer, right? Uh, there, there's the negative capability that's going to come up actually in the next chapter once more on the cast. But... Uh, you have to put yourself into another mindset to read the alethiometer, to use the subtle knife, Isaheru, uh, and also to read the Yijing, mm. which Mary does. So there's different stages, right, of being disconnected from your body and your consciousness, which in its own way, as we say that, doesn't it make you think of severing and separation, right? At that same time, floating yeah. away from your body, you're actually, you are choosing to sever yourself from your consciousness. And so the different stages of that are the intruder stage, where you have a sense of a presence, sometimes evil or hallucinations, an intruder, basically on your consciousness, something that feels unwelcome. An incubus, a feeling of pressure on your chest, suffocation, physical pain. And then there's vestibular motor, feature illusory movement, out-of-body experiences. And this unintentional or intentional separation or dissociation from your body kind of requires immense focus, somewhat peacefulness in some aspects, and connection basically between your mind and body to be able to ascend out of your body and seek consciousness. Like what Mary is doing is actually pretty much the stages of what you hope and want to do with meditation, as weird as that sounds, uh, that she's able to guide her thoughts, even if her body's not really letting her come home to it. It's a testament to the focus that it would require for her to read the Yijing and what she's been actually able to accomplish. And if she's able to catapult herself out of her body, right, uh, to be able to watch consciousness bloom around her, and vibe out there on the astral plane. 
it isn't really that far off from what Will is able to do from cutting open reality with a knife. I like that Mary's plot has transformed into using the spyglass in this aspect because it does show that what she has, she has her own superpower now. Like, she's always been able to see consciousness, whether she realized it or not. She's studied it. She's wanted it near her. She's craved it near her. She's followed it. Now she just needed an instrument to actually channel the matter and the magic through it. And she has that channel. She has the amber spyglass. She has the uh, the mirror that she made, the lacquered mirror. That alone proves the power was always within her. Now she just needs the material to see it with. Yeah, it seems like some of the instruments kind of like help focus, right? And I like what you're saying of, that. that's really interesting that the out-of-body experiences, while some people use it well and like in a way that's helpful for them, like I guess John Perry was able to do that. Mary doesn't, I guess, have that control. So I think that's really interesting that you're saying like there's that fearfulness of it being separated from your demon because it is like those aspects you would associate with a demon that, as you said, consciousness, the physical sensations that she uses to return um, and, and pulling on that connection and... Kind of like as an aside, it's funny that you're talking about like these instruments uh, and we have like three special ones. And OK, I'm just going to say it reminds me of the talismans from Sailor Moon. Yeah, one of, of them, the outer senshi. Yes, one of them is a knife. OK, kind of. Mm-hmm. It's a sword. A mirror. It's a mirror. It's kind of like a spyglass in a way, sort of. The glaive. Oh, that's right. There's more than three. Shit. Then you have the time key and the glaive. Wait, was the save like one of them? Or I know the time key is one. Like the the orb. The orb is. The glaive is uh, Ataru Saturn's. Yeah, I forgot that that was also technically a talisman. And then there's of course the the tra- the chalice. Mm-hmm, the chalice. So anyway, guess it doesn't work that well because there's too many. Whatever. <laughs> But I actually argue it does work well. No, because they're explaining that many instruments have all been born around the same time. Like, so Mm. many methods were actually born of how to read consciousness that people figured it out. This isn't new, necessarily. It's just a new refinement. Yeah. Focusing. And people focusing. And yeah, I guess there were a lot of alethiometers, too. Only one knife. They are just using some grit dust to really get into it. (laughs) I gotta use those more. I gotta use those more. I Uh, use them all the time, baby. I'm at at five stars. I got the game four days ago and I'm at five stars. Would you you like to talk about it? What is five? Oh. Oh. Holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) That just sank in. That sank in just now. I'm depressed. (laughs) Or is this like being truly alive? I don't know. Uh, I mean, reality does seem fake. Ask Mary Malone. Exactly. So, Mary Malone watches the particles resist the flow around her and realizes they are conscious. All around her, the dust keeps quickly flowing, but surrounding her directly, it is all slowed and stilled. She presses herself down and is infused with a deep ecstasy of being whole once more she sits up taking stock finding the spyglass and looking to the dust in the sky it's all flowing steadily like it did in her dream it's a flood of dust but she now can sense the dust more and feels that it's almost sorrowful that the particles knew what was happening i i thought it was kind of pointed that it's called like a flood of dust right and i don't Uh uh-huh think there's like much of it but like i i think there's something to it in that 
I mean, floods are pretty also significant in a lot of creation myths. A lot of creation myths, a lot of creation stories, a lot of creation books, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a lot of creation books of dust. <laughs> Interesting. Oh, wait, that's right. Yeah, it is. I feel like that's not a spoiler. It's on the cover. He's on a boat. Ah, the Lonely Island. Mary Malone puts her spyglass away after all this, right? Like, she gets down. She's like, I long for Earth once more. Mm -hmm. I love this. In contrast to Will's dad telling them you can't stay in the world together. Right? Hmm. Uh, heartbreaking. Fucking heart-wrenching. Wonder how that's going to affect the end of the book. Glossing over that. That being in a world or outside of your world could possibly be unhealthy for you in aspects. And Mary Malone and her lucid dreams. I imagine her dreaming in the sky is cool, but probably only for so long. Right? Like, it could be bad for you you could be lost forever in the astral plane looking for consciousness and then there's that giant metaphor that's involved in all of this of like people chasing after something or someone for so long that they can forget to live their life right while wasting their actual life i think that really rings true with a lot of these plots marisa lyra mary that if you stay up in the tree in the clouds if you open another window will perry you might forget to live, right? Mary Malone, get down from that tree because you might forget to live. That's a that's a really great point. I like that. And also, yeah, that pairs well with the idea of like you can create change wherever you are. And perhaps it is even imperative that you do. That's a good point. I mean, that's what the story's all about, right? Like that change, Probably. creating that change. I mean, for Lyra and Will, it feels like that's necessary. It could be. We're just we we've just given up. We've let's just throw it all pretense. <laughs> Anyways, um. So meanwhile, we cut to very much not Mary Malone. It's Father Gomez. He's stepping through a window in the evening light. It's kind of like what we ended last chapter on, but actually very different and terrible. He sees the great real trees and roads, and he can see a bit farther than Mary had when she arrived, for it had rained recently and it's nice and clear. Specifically, he can see large white shapes like sails. He lifts his bag on his shoulders and takes off towards the bay, where the tide seems to be pretty high and a dozen or more enormous snow-white birds, each the size of a rowboat, are in the water. Where's Cassidy? Where's our friend Cassidy? We need them here. You know, these birds have long wings, two yards in length, feathers, heads, swan-like beaks. It's the Dua Lipa, everyone. It is the Dua Lipa. The Tualapi. The Dua Lipa. It's the same thing. It's really the same thing. And suddenly the birds, the borbs, all turn with a snap. They see Father Gomez and their their wing sails are raised high, right? Like their wings are raised high like yacht sails and they make for the shore. And he watches them and he's like, huh. Their legs are paddling underwater. They're quick. They're graceful. They have teeth in their beak. One of them begins to make directly for Father Gomez, hissing, and Father Gomez casually takes out his rifle, aiming, firing, and exploding the bird's head. It takes a minute to die, and then does so bloodily, and the birds stop watching Father Gomez, a fierce intelligence and calculation in their eyes, looking from him to the bird to the rifle to him. And we have this passage... They were fine, strong creatures, 
large and broad-backed, like living boats. In fact, if they knew what death was, thought Father Gomez, and if they could see the connection between death and himself, then there was the basis of a fruitful understanding between them. Once they had truly learned to fear him, they would do exactly as he said. <sighs> so fucked up, mate. So fucked up. I, I feel so sad for the Dua Lipa because it almost seems like there could have been a reconciliation between them and the Mulefa elephant, right? Like, we know they're going to be a problem. They're in the same world. He's now changing their behavior. Uh, now that a stranger's come in, fucked up their ecosystem, started to learn how to enslave their entire population, I don't feel hopeful. Yeah, it seems bad. I don't know if I, like, felt hopeful. I don't know, because, like, it felt as though the Tuolapi were, like, meant to be the magisterium of that world, but also I'm, like, they feel pretty different, but I don't know. I will say that the way that Father Gomez approaches this, that he, like, feels like he can force them into obeying him because of, like, his weapons, right, through his will slash fear, reminds me a little bit of someone else entering another world, and by that I mean Mrs. Coulter and Chittagatse, and then how she is able to control the specters. Yeah, that's a really great point. I didn't think about that at all, but it has that same exact energy uh, and him taking his own army. That's what she took. Yeah. Pretty much. He's like, I'm scary. (laughs) It is kind of like such a, it's such a great tight plot, right? Like Mary Malone's chapters are so purposeful and intentional in this book that he doesn't get more time than he needs on the page. And Pullman makes that very, very clear and very quick that like, and now here's Gomez at the very end of the chapter for three paragraphs. It's going to fuck shit up. And that's all he needs. And I like that. I really do like that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that brings us into our last chapter for this episode, chapter 28, Midnight. Midnight without a sound on the pavement, cats the musical, cats, cats. That's not it. That's not it. <laughs> That's it. She's smiling alone. Eliana, what do we open with? We open with, uh, not... Not cats, not the T.S. Eliot, not this T.S. Eliot poem or inspiration, but John Keats. We have a line of, For many a time I have been half in love with Easeful Death. This is Ode to a Nightingale by John Keats, and it's actually in my top, probably my top ten of poems. I don't know if I've actually said this out loud, but... You guys know I'm a huge poetry nerd. Like, you've been here for that part. But, like, when I say I'm a big poetry nerd, I did slam poetry. I didn't know this about you. Oh. I don't want to, like, come clean about it, but in a way I have to, that I did slam poetry. I read Emily Dickinson in fourth grade and cried about how much I loved her. Like, the first time I've ever been published in a public work was actually a poetry compilation. Uh, when I was like 13. I love poetry. I do. It's very pleasing, right? Like it's short, fulfilling, but yet it's a snippet. You know, it's like a quick come. I love that shit. I fucking love like an emotional orgasm out of like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, this much text, you know? It's very powerful. That's powerful, in my opinion. It is. It is. But I didn't know you used to do slam poetry. It was for like a year and a half. We don't have to talk about it ever again. 
we we could we could talk about it again. But don't tell people if I'm they want to know. Sick. Eliana, it's in the podcast. If they want to know, they have to listen to the podcast. They have to listen to two thirds of the way at least through this episode. Maybe yeah, I'm a we'll big fucking goes. blue balls and teas is what I'm saying. <laughs> Uh, anyway, Ode to a Nightingale is a great poem, one of my favorites, and it's a perfect poem for this chapter, because when I read this chapter, I was very taken with Mr. Basilides' uh, role as being the alethiometrist for Azriel's side of the aid that he brings to Coulter and his nightingale demon. He's the one to deliver word that Lyra lives to Coulter, and according to Keats's friend, Charles Armitage Brown, the poem was written under a plum tree in the garden of Keats's house at Wentworth Place, where a nightingale made its new home and sang all day. It's actually Keats's longest ode, 80 lines, describing his journey into negative capability, which we've talked about here on the cast, thanks to you, Eliana, and of course our friend Warren. Actually, he's a big Keats fan. Negative capability is a phrase used by Keats in 1817 to explain the capacity of the greatest writers to pursue an artistic vision, right? Artistic beauty, even when it leads them into intellectual confusion and uncertainty, as opposed to a preference for philosophical certainty over artistic beauty. Following the beautiful things in life wherever they lead you. And the tone of Ode to Nightingale is actually very different than Keats's earlier works. It explores nature, transience, mortality, something that was very important and relevant for Keats in his end of his career. He was very obsessed with mortality. And the poem talks about the nightingale experiencing death, but never actually dying, living through its entire song, which humans don't always get to do, right? It ends with acceptance. Pleasure can't last. Death's inevitable. In the poem, Keats imagines the loss of the physical world and sees himself dead as almost like a sod over which the nightingale seems, not unlike the abyss, right? Not unlike the abyss below right now. I think it's so interesting that Mary and Marisa come to almost the exact same conclusions from very different uh, hypotheses and practicing, right? Mary realizes that the flow of the world, the molecules that are moving in the world and why they're moving, she understands it all and chooses to float back down. Marisa comes to accept the abyss is open below them to swallow them and that maybe the abyss is actually worse than death itself. And she's like, I'm ready for a suicide mission. Let's fucking go. Well, at the moment, it sounds like, yeah, she's just like ready to for suicide, right? <laughs> Whereas Mary, I mean, she steps up to it and she's like, well, we do what we have to where we can. She knows that she's there to think and meets the challenge. But for now, Azriel wakes Marisa as they are about to land the intention craft, and Zephania is gliding above the landing to bring them in. Azriel immediately leaps out to chat with King Agunway and ignores Marisa, which is kind of like what pretty much everyone else does right now, because apparently no one cares that she stole a ship. Actually, that was according to Keikaku, but <laughs> she was invisible, but for the orderly uh, that would bring her food and coffee. She schemes to have Mr. Basilides, the alethiometrist for Azrael's side, to come chat with her, and she changes into a clean shirt and lights some coals for her room, just to like heat it up a bit. The alethiometrist with his nightingale demon arrives bowing 
accepting some coffee and telling her the news, Lyra is still alive, but also in the world of the dead. It seems impossible, <laughs> but Maurice accepts it all the same. I love the Nightingale demon, as we talked about with the poem. Uh, just to pull a demon corner in the end mm. of the book. Nightingales are often seen as symbols of beauty and melody, and because they're nocturnal, also darkness and mysticism. And something that I think is more interesting and kind of shines in Pullman using the poem at the start of the chapter is that they have a very rich repertoire and they're able to produce over 1,000 different sounds where, you know, skylarks, for example, can only produce 340 different sounds. And blackbirds can only do 100 different sounds. So part of the brain for nightingales responsible for creating sound is actually bigger than in most other birds. You know... Exactly what you'd need if you were reading the alethiometer and remembering all of these meanings. Interesting. Interesting. I thought it was so pointed. I was like, oh, that's why he's an alethiometrist, because he can remember more and has a capacity for more like his demon. And that idea of song, right? Of the Mm -hmm. nightingale and the notes, as you were saying, and Lyra and the lyre and song, maybe. Mm. I don't know. Oh, a player and a liar. Oh, yeah. Just music of the world. Midnight, not a sound. Anyways, so. (laughs) Chloe's face right now is like, what the fuck is going on? Why is Eliana singing from Cats? One of our listeners said explicitly on an iTunes review once that they we're hooked on the podcast because we talked about cats. So clearly this is a selling point for us. Anyway, Mr. Basilides tells Marisa that Lyra did all of this because she'd overheard a prophecy and now she's going to free the ghosts and themselves from the world of the dead. And the best news of all, that bomb did not hurt her. So it is not all in vain. And Mrs. Coulter is in pain emotionally but also physically, as you'll remember, it was a pretty it was a pretty gnarly fight. She's keeping it together somewhat. Mrs. Coulter does express gratitude to the alethiometrist and then goes to lie down on her bed. And she's trying to rest, but cannot cannot seem to be able to. She can't close her eyes. And I'm I'm just saying this is a really big part, a big contrast of how we can understand Mrs. Coulter and Lyra's characters, because Lyra is very good at sleeping, and Mrs. Coulter right. apparently can't just do it. Yeah, well, as Lyra will learn someday as an adult, sleeping is hard when life sucks. Yeah, okay. so true, so true. God. Every night, I lie awake, and I stare at the ceiling. Anyways. Meanwhile, Azriel and a gunway are staring out of a telescope at the sky where a mountain covered in cloud has appeared. Yes, it's so metal. The chariot, the clouded mountain. One thing is for sure. Metatron has the wheel. Metatron. They speak of him in the apocryphal scriptures. He was a man once, a man called Enoch, the son of Jared, six generations away from Adam, and now he rules the kingdom, and he's intending to do more than that, if that angel they found by the sulfur lake was correct, the one who entered the clouded mountain to spy. If he wins this battle, he intends to intervene directly into human life. We'll talk a lot more about Metatron in the following two months. Uh, he ends up getting a personality. No spoilers. Uh, ends up getting a personality. 
he becomes such a large part, right, of this corruption that's going on that we've seen from the first two books through the CCD, through the authority. And, you know, that corruption, especially from a meta level, a meta-metatron level, if you will. Whoa. If you won't, that's fine, too. (gasps) Metatron's word is not considered canon in real life. Uh, It's not considered gospel or scripture. It was slowly phased out and looked down upon by many organized religions, whether Judaism or Christianity. The first book of Enoch describes the fall of the Watchers, the angels who fathered the angel-human hybrids called the Nephilim. The remainder of the book describes Enoch's revelations and visits to heaven in forms of travels, visions, dreams, not unlike Mary in the last chapter, right, where she's traveling via dream and vision. And the book consists of five distinct major sections, the Book of Watchers, the Book of Parables of Enoch, the Astronomical Book, the Book of Dream Visions, and the Epistle of Enoch. Many scholars believe these five sections were originally independent works with different dates of composition, a product of how much editorial arrangement, and they were only later redacted into what is now called Enoch 1, 1 Enoch. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. And yes, we will talk about him more going forward. It's a bummer that like this Enoch, like such an asshole. Because he was a homie in Agents of Shield. Different Enoch, but something new. Anyway. So a permanent inquisition to ruin everyday human life. I mean, did we really need like an like a rogue angel to do that? Like I didn't do that on my own. And he started by invading the Republic. They notice a gray drift off of the clouded mountain. But after looking closer, they're like, oh shit, that's not smoke, those are angels. In the tens of thousands, the sky darkened with their presence. They streamed slowly to the north and south, and the clouds part for only a moment for Azriel and the gunway to see the mountain. But then the swirl covers it once more. Uh, a gunway notes that that's not a mountain, that's no moon. Um, it's complexity of things, and guns were the first thing he could see on that mountain. And a gunway seems a little bit in despair that, oh, maybe their armies could overpower our little operation, but Azrael reminds him that they are stronger than them. They haven't got flesh. He laid his hand against his friend's rough cheek. Ooh, I've read some things that Interesting. start Interesting. <laughs> Few as we are, he went on, and short-lived as we are, and weak-sighted as we are. Oh, these are all trending downward. In comparison with them, we're still stronger. They envy us a gunway. That's what fuels their hatred. I'm sure of it. I'm not so sure of it. It's an interesting (laughs) bit of projection. Maybe? Maybe. But, I mean, Metatron's lived that life before, and he clearly was like... That kind of sucked, so does he have yet? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe he does, and that because he wanted to be alive again. Who knows? Maybe that's beyond the books, too, right? Like, in some aspects, I'm like, I don't, and this isn't really a spoiler, I just don't think Metatron's motivations are actually explored in full in an earnest level to, to analyze it on that level, right? I'm like, yeah. maybe that's a whole other story that Metatron failed, tried, failed, tried. I agree. I don't think... I think I have thought about this just, like, only a smidgen more. Not by that much more. A smidgen more than <laughs> than Philippe, but... So... Philippe. The horse? <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't... Which, what a horse? Philippe the horse? Maybe it's not. I know it's the prince. <laughs> <laughs> What no, it's Philippe. It's I Belle's horse. 
Oh. Bell's Belgian draft horse. His I didn't remember Philippe. his name. I'm sorry. I don't remember that horse's name. I remember the cup. Wow. I remember Chip. I remember Chip and Lumiere. That's Where's it. your horse goddess now? Um, she's she's fallen. I'm talking she, about you, yeah. Yeah, no, I know horse. she's fallen. It's because you know she envies the the short lived, weak sighted, fleshy people. Um. Anyway. Asriel, maybe projecting, maybe not. I want to talk a little bit about the angels and their structure, because angels, as we see, right, they are in many ways similar to demons. They disintegrate similarly when dying, and they are beings of consciousness. And also the alethiometer explicitly tells Lyra, yeah, we're dust and angels, so those are made of the same thing. Now, I am not so sure if human ghosts slash spirits are technically made of dust or not. Uh, we have somewhat of an argument against it, right? Not against it. We have somewhat of an argument speaking to that from John Perry saying, like, well, the specters seem to like to eat demons, but we don't have demons, so perhaps we stand a chance. So, I'm wondering, like, is there, like, a process there that, again, I've probably thought about this a little more than Philippe, um, of, like, how one becomes an angel, you know, by somehow transforming, like, the ghost into a being of consciousness and dust, right? Is there an act of severing somewhat that goes into it to become an angel? I don't know. It does seem like they are, realistically speaking, like, they're different plane of emotion, right? Like, Do they, they merge? I mean, they obviously... Wow. Like, Is the Digimon. fanfic about their sex? <laughs> Anyways... There is. There has to be. Both Amos and Baruch. Anyways, but um, I'm just imagining like the light merging and the dust being all... Blah, blah, blah. I'm telling you, it's Digimon. We've talked about Digimon a lot. <laughs> Angels Our podcast. are the champions. Angel uh, it's Angelmon. Angelmon. Angel, Angel Woman. Angel oh, yeah, that's Mon. all. There yeah. is also Angel Woman. Yep, yep. Yeah. Uh, I'm interested, though. Is there a severing? I mean, uh, back to what I was saying. before the Digimon. Emotionally, they are on a very different plane, right? Like the things they care about, and maybe that's just from age, wisdom, magic, aren't the same as what our protagonists care about. And they're very removed from the actuality of what it means when a human dies, for example. So, interesting. They are severed in some aspects from reality, whether they are or not. I mean, they are. I think it's, like, I guess some of them, because, like, obviously the alethiometer slash dust, they seem to be invested in Lyra's campaign, and mm-hmm. Zafania seems invested in cares. I mean, Zafania cares about the plight of Lyra and Will, and then also Baruch and Balthamos, they have a lot of feelings, all right? Yes. Very emotional, <laughs> and so... I guess it's it's some of them, right? Some of them, as you said, they seem detached, but some of them are not. And those who care, as we can see, they are still kind of in touch with a sense of humanity and consciousness. If anything, it just makes me think more of Serafina, right? If we want an mm. explanation, I think it's closer to how Serafina regards things, how 300 yeah. to 500 year old feuds last. Uh Interesting. Uh, I think it's time. I think time is really the ingredient here. Time and power, I think, is... Yeah. Kang Agunway argues they have living, flesh-owning allies from thousands of worlds over there in the Bad Army. And Asriel's like, yeah, but we're gonna win. Agunway wonders if the armies will be looking for Lyra, Asriel's child. And Asriel exults, and he's like, 
aren't I so great for pumping that sperm into the universe? Like, what a magnificent child. I did such a great job. She's going to the world of the dead. I want to shake her boyfriend's hand, right, for wielding that knife. <laughs> so... I do appreciate this dialogue. I, I kind of read some of it a little different. I, I For me, I kind of read a bit of pride in Azrael, right? Because finally, like, we see maybe this is how he's really felt about his daughter the whole time. And he's just like the biggest Sundari ever in the series. There's this line that I like of like, did we know what we were taking on when we started this rebellion? No. But did they know? The authority in his region? This Metatron? Did they know what they were taking on when my daughter got involved? And turns out this whole time, I mean, maybe he actually was pretty impressed with his daughter the whole time, like what mm. she did in the North. And he was just like negging Mrs. Coulter earlier in the book when he said those mean <laughs> things about Lyra, because as we find out later on in the book, he's like, yeah, I just like lied to you about my plans. Uh, so I, he probably lied about his feelings about Lyra too, but I think there's finally like a bit of that parental aspect that we see in Azrael where he thinks of like you know my kids are my kid is better than me she surpassed me and again that idea of wanting to leave the world a better place for his child in this chapter and you know we do see Azrael saying that he's more than enough to give Metatron and the authority a run for their money so I, I think again there's that sense of pride of like that well if he and his army were underestimated he sees Lyra as a much more powerful force than even him. You know, Eliana, you know what I've always said about you? I've always said you are charitable and beautiful <laughs> and funny. And I'm going to stick to that Are you just putting now. Leslie Note about <laughs> Nope, that's just how I sound. That's just the sound. I don't know. Sometimes voice. it blends. You beautiful, talented, gorgeous muskox. Oh my god. King Agunway asks if Azriel knew of Lyra's importance before all of this. And Agunway's like, no, I mean, I didn't know that. But that's that's why I wanted to talk to Mr. Basilides. Basilides, however, is tired from Coulter's interrogation. But Azriel doesn't care. He's like, send for him anyway. He also asks the new Galavespian uh, character to be introduced in the late book here, Madame Oxential, the Galavespian second-in-command to be sent to the tower. He needs to give her some condolences over Lord Roke's death. She'd be taking over his post. Throughout the day, his angels fly over the mountain looking for a weakness, but nothing changes at the clouded mountain. The day dies, and the armies start to get set in place for the rebellion. Panzerborn march from the north, guided by their king, to join the war, and the first of several witch clans arrive. Farther away, Asriel's angels are spying, right? They're toiling, they're keeping watch. At midnight, Asriel holds council in the adamant tower with Ogunway, Zephania, Madame Exential, and Tukros Basilides, who had just given them something from the alethiometer that made Asriel pale. He invites them to have wine with them, and King Ogunway pours Asriel's favorite, Tokai, and asks Azrael, what does it all mean, man? And it <laughs> is that when the battle joins, they have a new objective. Lyra and Will have separated from their demons, survived, and their demons are in this world, and Metatron is intent on capturing them. If he can control their demons and capture them, then the future is Metatron's. So, said Lord Azrael, to sum it up, 
all of us, our republic, the future of every conscious being. We all depend on my daughter's remaining alive and on keeping her demon and the boys out of the hands of Metatron? The answer is yes. I will say some of these things here you might have all noticed. The Republic of Heaven language comes up twice in these three chapters. So there's there's some things tying together John Perry and Asriel's like, visions and expectations for the future. Just keep an eye on that. Azrael instructs his commanders to defend the fortress and find the children and their demons, that the boy will be able to help them escape to other worlds, and Madame Accentiel will take charge of this. We have a line of, The lady nodded, her stiff gray hair caught the lamplight, glinting like stainless steel, and the blue hawk she had inherited from Lord Roke spread his wings briefly on the bracket by the door. So I think this is an important slash interesting reminder that, you know, I was getting carried away earlier, but the Galavespians mounts, they're not exactly like their demons, right? Like, essential, like, inheriting this verb, being able to share it with, like, a previous other Galavespian shows it's pretty different. I think that's beautiful. It's great. I, I do think yeah. that's so beautiful. It's I, I like think dragons. it's sad. It's kind of like yeah, it, it is. Birds. It's also little. Yeah, it, it's dragon rider. It's dragonfly mm-hmm. rider. Um, it's hawk rider for her. Hawk and rider. I love her. It's hawk guy. Uh, I love her. Like her description. Her stiff gray hair showing that of their people that is them. Right. Mm-hmm. Stiff, harsh. Um, just a little bit, but I love the passing down, and it does remind me of some of the demon traditions we know about, like the demons naming the child demon. Mm-hmm. In some aspects, it has that same kind of, you know, familial bond. Like, there's a bond yeah. that, that bird already has from somebody that did their duty. Uh, and yeah. I actually regret, I don't, no spoilers, I don't think we get a lot on Madame Exentiel after this uh not too much right we see her doings but they don't mean as much as the the gal of espions we've already met i kind of forgot she was a character in this book until this yep. reread so yeah absolutely 100 percent, 100 percent. that's willing, what i said just shorter I'm willing, to, I'm willing to admit that i i'm just willing to like put that out there yeah i had no clue i had no clue and maybe next episode we'll we'll chat more on like her etymology and a little bit more about her because i was so taken off guard i completely forgot about her yeah, I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> well, Azrael asks Zephania not what she knows of Madame Zenshiel, but of Metatron. And while Zephania hasn't seen Metatron up close, he was strong, he relished combat, and he always won. Azrael gets inspired, his focus suddenly withdrawing, and says he sees. He mentions that Mr. Basilides informed him that the Magisterium's bomb didn't just open an abyss below but also structured the actual foundation of worlds so that there are fissures and cracks everywhere. He commands them to look for a way down to the edge of the abyss, because he plans on destroying Metatron with it. He says that his part is nearly over, and now it's time for Lyra to live, she and that boy and their demons, a safer world for the both of them. And and again, like as we've said a couple of times, you know, the whole message of create change where you are, but also the accompanying of that message with and leave it better for those who come after Mm, like you said earlier about them just trying to improve the world a little bit yes i try to do that great great messaging eliana really well done 
I don't know that I would have necessarily taken that, but for somebody that blasted an entire hole in existence, I'm very surprised that now Asriel wants to make the world a better place. Is Asriel just like, I want to see all holes blown into the universe? <laughs> Asriel's like, even sinners can repent. Yeah. Would you call that hole like a glory hole on the universe then? Which one? Both? Yes. It's like a giant glory hole in the middle of the universe, the, the yeah. abyss. In that the universes get fucked? Yes. Also yes, but just that it's just like this gaping fucking hole. Yeah, fucking Anyways. Ho- a fucking hole. Yes. Yeah. So King of Gunway, speaking of fucking holes, King of Gunway what asks, the fuck? what about Mrs. Coulter? King of Gunway's like... Uh, this is a feminist perspective podcast, first King of, of Gunway seems like a nice man. Um, He's done nothing King of Gunway wrong. asks, what about Mrs. Coulter? And Asriel's like, just leave her be. Protect her if the fighting reaches her. Aw, uwu. He has a second thought. He's like, maybe I'm doing her an injustice. She's never failed to surprise me. Maybe maybe she could be beneficial out there. But nonetheless, the goal is save Lyra. Meanwhile, Coulter is lying in Asriel's bed, very familiar, Ooh. next door, hearing voices and stirring. Her demon sat up beside her, but she didn't want to move closer to the door. It was simply the sound of Lord Asriel's voice she wanted to hear, rather than any particular words. She thought they were both doomed. She thought they were all doomed. Some projection. <laughs> Anyways, it's a very emotional moment, in my opinion. I'm actually very sad. Uh, her emotional state this whole chapter. Yeah. Listen, as a Coulter Stan girl, what I can tell you is her emotional state makes me very sad in this chapter that she's kind of given up. She's like, oh, nothing means anything. Oh, I toiled at the Magisterium for 30 fucking years, whatever, 25 years, 20 years, and this is what I get? The end of the world and all of a sudden death doesn't matter? Nothing matters? The afterlife doesn't matter? It's all a lie? Uh, her whole world is topsy-turvy right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what she needs to do is find five Pokemon... Guardians. Okay. Oh my god. <laughs> the wardens. Coulter hears the door close in the other room and stands, and she walks toward Naphtha Light, where Asriel is alone at his map. She asks, what'll happen to us? Fatigued. Their demons are very still. He's surprised she wasn't eavesdropping, like she normally would. And she asks, where's Lyra? Does anyone know? He says no, and she can tell that he's withholding information. She says something that surprises him. She says, we should have married and brought her up ourselves. <laughs> yeah. So Marisa's full of surprises for Asriel this, I mean, like in the, these few pages, like every single mo- thing she says, he's like, what the fuck? <laughs> surprise, surprise, surprise. And I will say, though, like, it's nice that she thinks this. But there's a part of me that's low-key, like, I mean, was Lyra, like, would she have been worse off being raised by Lord Asriel and Marisa than the life that she had? I mean, they didn't grow to this level until today, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, I feel like... Of any of them, Marisa go. is doing the most, though, right now, as far as repenting. You know, like, she's really... 
Marisa's going through it. Marisa is getting in those emotions at the end of the world. She's like, oh, wow, I did terrible things. Yeah. And now I'm repenting. She's like, I have regrets. She's like, I made a huge mistake. And <laughs> she was a tattoo yeah. artist and she was like, please cross out the no and just leave the regrets. Yeah. Whereas Azrael is like, I'm going to get the tattoo today. Hashtag no regrets. <laughs> Spelled that way. <laughs> That's he is him no today. regrets. Yeah, absolutely. And Marisa actually has this great little passage up above here where she's talking about oblivion. She she mm. starts to go on and she's like, I can't bear the thought of oblivion. Anything but that. She th- used to think that hell, pain, that would be better than feeling nothing forever and ever. I love this passage. His part was simply to listen. His eyes were locked on hers, and he was paying profound attention. There was no need to respond. She said, the other day, when when you spoke about her so bitterly, and about me, I thought you hated her. I could understand your hating me. I've never hated you, but I could understand. I could see why you might hate me, but I couldn't see why you hated Lyra. <laughs> so sad. I know. Turns out he was just a better liar than, I guess, both of them. And. Comes from one of them, right? <laughs> comes from both. That girl had no chance. She's just gonna be what a liar. What are you talking about? Coulter's never lied in her life. <laughs> oh my god. Well, Mrs. Coulter remembers something from Svalbard that Azrael had said on the mountaintop Come with me and we'll destroy dust forever. But his journey was the opposite. It was to preserve dust and. She asks, why did he lie? And he tells her, well, I thought you'd prefer a lie. And that he'd actually really wanted her to join him. Communication's important to relationships, everyone, all right? Just just communicate with each other. Because, I mean, the tragedy of Maurice and Azrael is, first of all, again, terrible communication. Second of all, they clearly desired each other. I mean, maybe even loved each other. But they clearly, I think, I don't know that they ever really understood each other, right? Marisa struggles to even understand herself, so good fucking luck, Asriel. And, I mean, obviously she's been lying to move ahead in the world, right? She's been playing games her whole life. She surprises Asriel because, turns out he doesn't really get her or what she wants. That's why he's always surprised by her. But also, I mean, of course, because not only... Of course he'd assume that because Marisa spent so much time just lying to herself. How could she know? How could Azriel know? That turns out for once, all that she really wanted was the truth. Yeah. And there's a certain vulnerability, right? And yeah. you get these flashbacks to the Northern Lights, Golden Compass, where her demon swooned into his demon, yes. right? And some of the kind of just the physical relationship in this chapter. And she's making herself very vulnerable to him um a side of Coulter that we don't necessarily see unless she's using it to seduce and murder right like where she's like here i am teehee look at my girlish flesh here she's not doing it for that she's doing it as a last stand like this is it this is all we have the abyss is below us and it's now it's now for the truth yeah i guess she had a near-death experience too now that i think about it yeah she watched Roke die instead. That was sad. Marisa murmurs Asriel's name. 
and the monkey puts his hand out as if to touch the snow leopard's paw. Azriel doesn't move, his eyes fixed on Coulter and Stelmaria's as well. Coulter asks, what will happen to us, Azriel, if this is the end of everything? And she moves as if in a dream. She reaches in her bag and she goes to grab her pistol, but whatever she planned to do, whether herself or Azriel, is interrupted footsteps running upstairs to inform them that two demons have been spotted at the gate in the form of cats, but they wouldn't come near the sentry who was calling after them. I bet Pullman doesn't know what Mrs. Coulter was going to do either. He likes that ambiguity. It feels sexy. It feels Riverdale, you know? There's a gun. <laughs> Alice does. Cooper's going to use it. <laughs> My fucking god. The fatigue melts from Azriel's face and he launches into action, ignoring Coulter, shouting commands for Madame Exentiel and others at once, making sure everyone knows how they should be treating the demons. His voice and footsteps fade in the hall, then Coulter finds the eyes of her demon, almost an answer, right? That was an answer to her question right there. No answer, and he's gone. The golden monkey's expression was as subtle and complex as it had ever been in all their 35 years of life. Very well, she said. I can't see any other way. I think, I think Will. He knew at once what she meant. He leapt to her breast and they embraced. Then she found her fur-lined coat and they very quietly left the chamber and made their way down the dark stairs. Yes. So, it's it's such an interesting place to leave that off, and, you know, as we've learned just now of Marisa longing for the truth, perhaps she's learning it at the same time as the reader, and that expression of her embracing her demon, finally, I think we're seeing her come together with herself and be honest with herself. It's interesting, actually, the, the build-up she gets for this end of the novel and what mm -hmm. Pullman really does put into her. I think she is on that path of repentance, right? She's doing what she can to repent in the time she has left. But as she's noticing now, it doesn't feel like there's anything left. There's no time left. The world's disappearing and decaying. It's very romantic in a way. <laughs> it is. It's awfully romantic. The sway of the demons and Stelmaria and the golden monkey and her being like, yo, Asriel, the world's ending? What are we gonna do? And him and with heaven's his, like, warring, yeah. Yeah, his dark features all looking away, unable what's the term, the anime term? Unable to meet her eyes, you know. Which one oh, is I that? Don't, I don't know that one. I don't know that term. It's not Sundari. What's the other ones? Mm. Come on, Eliana, you're slacking. There is it like Mudari? I don't know. I don't remember all of them. There's so many. There's so many different Whatever one it is. He's like <laughs> He is, like, very much, I can't meet your eye, because if I do, that means death is imminent. And she's like, but mm. I'm ready to face death, even if you're not, Clark Gable. Um, yes, it's like that. It it really is. It's very it old, is. dreamy, romantic yes, movies. Yes. And, I don't know, I really love that. It's because of the otherworldly feeling. Like, if, if, you know, I highly recommend if you guys are looking for something to watch day to day, John Cocteau's Orpheus trilogy is really mm. good. It's just beautiful and sad and haunting and like a film masterpiece, even if you're like not sure what you're watching because it is in French. Even if you're not 100% sure what's going on, like it's just gorgeous to watch it progress, but it's sad and haunting and fleeting. And I feel like these three chapters 
even Mary's in some aspects are all sad, haunting, fleeting. Mm-hmm. They are. They are. I we're these are sad, haunting, and as you said, fleeting. We're really ramping up for some of that ending climax of the book. Sadder, hauntinger, fleetinger. What are you? What do you mean? The story gets happy, happier. Oh God. Oh, authority. Well, oh, the authority. That's it, right? That's the end of the chapter. That's it for our non-spoiler review. We'll be back next I'm sorry, month. we did a bad job again. <laughs> did okay. We'll be back next month with hopefully minimal spoilers in our uh, 29, 30, and 31. Battle on the Plain, Clouded Mountain, Authority's End. Whoa, spoilers. What could that mean? <laughs> what the so, fuck? Hey, that's the chapter title. It's not my fault. Uh, if you're a Doctor Who fan, you know, never read chapter titles before reading the chapters. That said, we only have one, two, three, four episodes left. Four episodes. So buckle up, finish the book. And if you have not read the outer books, the novellas, the books of dust, the end of the book yet, please log off now. We don't want to spoil you. We'll have a very quick, very swift discussion today. Uh, and join us next month. But if you have read it, stay tuned for the discussion. Yeah. I have only a speck, a speck of dust for the discussion today. I'm assuming if you're still here, it's fine. All right. I, I guess we gave you like 10 seconds, so I hope you move fast. If you like, you're listening on the speaker, giving you a little bit more time. But here it is. So my one thought for the discussion today is we see in the chapter focused on Mary platform, Mary doing some of that astral projection. And of course, as we've seen in previous chapters, Mary is an explorer traversing worlds. And I think that there's something really fun here of how she's sort of being built up, I think, as a parallel to John Perry, which I which makes sense as she kind of takes on something of a surrogate parent slash mentor role for Will because she's learning some of those same sort of mystical skills that John Perry had, has that same pursuit of knowledge, is very much a scholar, right? And we find out John Perry kind of was in Lyra's world as Stanislaus Grumman. Uh, so it she shares more with Will's father than just a love of these kids. She really shares a lot of, I think, those same core drivers that John Perry had. In this mm-hmm. couple, three chapters, kind of the dark version of Mary, which is Marisa, and the light version of Marisa, which is Mary. And seeing those together in kind of their, just their subtle understanding that like all life ends. Ha! Their subtle knife understanding. Their subtle understanding that all life ends. And life right now is important or unimportant. And Marisa's immediate turn to like, take it out the gun. Could be me, could be Asriel. You know, someone's gonna fucking die in this room. Uh, and then you have Mary's understanding, like, oh, life is important. We have to fucking protect it. Uh, yeah. Such, like, their realizations were the same realizations, but absolute different tones of how they took them. And John Perry and Asriel were also very kind of aligned with both of those as the dark versions. Like, John and Mary were such light versions of it, and Asriel and Marisa, the darker versions, the dark mirrors across chapters. And seeing... Yeah, our world's John the Perry. best. Yeah, it is. It really is. <laughs> Seeing John Perry immediately throw it all out, right? 
it, it just makes so much sense why Will's story and Mary's story gets to continue together in the end. Yeah. And I guess also, even like Mary's demon is a bird, same as John Terry's is also a bird. Yes. And, and yeah, what you were saying of like how Mary accepts, you know, sees life as something precious that should be protected. But I think she has a much more peace with it, right? And John Perry, I think, has mm-hmm. some of those similar, similar. And I think that comes from their their similar backgrounds and oppressing themselves in some aspects. Like John Perry joined the Marines. Mary mm. joined. Oh, yeah, Abbey interesting. Nun, yeah, yeah, right. They devoted yeah. their lives, giving them to someone else, and then found themselves cheating on that world and wanting more for themselves, and wanting the truth, and wanting freedom, and free speech, and uh, to free others, which is just as freeing as being free yourselves, as we, we see Lyra and Will learn yeah. today. Yep. So I that's just something that stood out to me. I was like, have fun. And yeah, as you said, uh, there's always something there that continues to strengthen that fascinating contrast between how Mary's life and Marisa's life turned out. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that that diversion in study, that diversion in school, that diversion in applying yourself and where each of them went. What great characters. Go Pullman. Actually, they really are, though. They are. These are are better novella. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) I was going to say that. If we don't get a Will novella with Mary involvement, then I... I don't know what to say about what the fame has done to Pullman. You know, he's gone to his God damn it. I think he, he doesn't wants... remember what's important, <sighs> Eliana. What's important is us. Maybe he like wants to do it, but he wants to like, you know. Do it right? Do it right. But at the same like time the third I... book of dust. Sure. I was gonna say like the sixth, I guess. Uh, ass off book but I, I think Pullman is better at getting something out on the, just putting something on the page right and being like mm-hmm. we have to just go with this and, and letting the story he's yeah, better that, getting over fair. that mental block I think you know and he's just like no it's absolutely fair Perfect he's much more he's stricter I mean he is stricter about his regimen about his writing about how he writes he's he's uh, organized in some aspects, some aspects not, but many aspects. He's very organized. He's he's routine. He's a man of routine, it seems. Yeah, so. he's willing to move the story forward, even if imperfect. But it's still as we, as we see, it's a powerful story. We love it, but for for this trilogy, oh, that little flaws. What a cute flaws. What a cute flaws. I don't have much else to add to the discussion this week besides. I guess this is We're it, so right? Close. Like, we know it's over. Yeah. Like, Will and Lyra can never be together. I mean, it's right there. Anybody that thought they could be was just fucking fooling themselves, Chloe. I mean, Chloe. Uh, <laughs> it's over. It's fucking over. Everything's awful. Yeah. Or yeah. maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's all say just it's, beginning. Maybe it's good. We've only just begun to White lace and promises of a third book and maybe novella. We've only just begun. Yeah. I guess that's it. I just can't believe we have four episodes left until it's all over. That's so sad. And sad. Um, We haven't finished the series yet. I don't know how to deal with it. Eliana, our demons are going to settle. 
I'm still not ready. <laughs> I'm not ready either. We have four months to figure out what they're going to settle as. I don't know enough animals. Tell us what your demon is. If you guys are still listening here in this very dusty stash and the specks of dust everywhere, tell us yeah. what your demons are. You know, like your settled demon, not like your, oh, but he still changes sometimes. No, bitch. You're like post-puberty, your demon. Tell us what your demon is because I need a little inspo. We got four months. We really got to sell it here, you know? Yeah. Yep. I mean, I just wish, I wish that as part of a promotional campaign, HBO slash BBC had just sent me a statue to tell me, we think this is your demon. I wish they could have just told me what it was. That's so funny you wish that because I wish as part of a promotional or marketing (laughs) campaign that I got a blanket, although I'm very grateful for the blanket that Eliana sent me in lieu of me not getting the blanket. I understand. It's not the same. We have a lot of yeah. wishes. We have a lot of wishes. Yeah. I mean, I I still keep hoping they're going to they're gonna send me a, a little statue. <laughs> send us statues. Please, 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 please. Well, okay. That said, we're gone till next month. We will be back at the end of next month with your next episode with Battle on the Plain, Clouded Mountain, and Authorities End. And then we will break into the final three episodes. We're going to be so sad. Can't wait to cry once more on this podcast with you all. Indeed, indeed. But until then, let's say you have some thoughts. Perhaps, again, you would like to share your demon with us. You can find us on Twitter at GirlsGoneCanon, C-A-N-O-N. Send us a tweet or shoot us a DM. Or, if you'd like, you can also send us an email at GirlsGoneCanon at gmail.com. Yes, and if you're not already, make sure you're subscribed to us on a streaming platform that is most convenient to you so you get all of our feed updates. This could be Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Acast, uh, gosh, Amazon Podcasts, even Audible? We're all over the place. Look it up. You'll find us. Yes. And, of course, you can always find us on patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon, where we host all of these episodes and also bonus episodes once a month. And this month's bonus episode for patrons in the Stranger Tier and above is Circe by Madeline Miller, C-I-R-C-E. Yeah, and if you're in the Thunder tier and above, the $10 tier and above, you will get access to our private Discord server where there are 30 plus channels you can chat about anything and everything, whether it's His Dark Materials, A Song of Ice and Fire, or other pop culture and everyday life stuff with other fellow fans. It's a blast, including weekly His Dark Material discussion events in the voice chat, as well as monthly chats for the brunch and happy hour which we'll be announcing pretty soon for march well thank you everyone for joining us on this journey into the stars into the (laughs) abyss back out into the stars whatever matter will just flow away indeed indeed i have been one of your hosts eliana and i existentially have been another one of your hosts chloe Rip. We should have gotten Rip. married and raised her together, Chloe. <laughs> oh my god, goodbye. <laughs>